Fine silver is 99.9% uh, silver with only slight impurities. It's, it's beautiful to look at. Imagine a, a shiny fine silver coin, the kind that investors uh, have as part of their portfolio. Maybe it has a buffalo or, or a Native American on it or something cool like that. Now imagine ore with uh, silver in it. It kind of looks dull, gray, black, rock, kind of like that. Now let's say that you invest $1,000 in coins, uh, fine silver coins, and a silversmith from Williamsburg, Virginia, named James Getty, named after the, the best-known colonial silversmith, comes to you and offers to purify your fine silver coins. Now, you're not going to be interested because your coins are 99.9% uh, .9 fine silver. So what can this guy do? Maybe he can help some other people, but your silver is, is already pure. On the other hand, if you had ore containing silver, uh, you'd be pretty interested in what James Getty's processing and refining could do for you. It, it could... Uh, transform that into fine silver and then make something beautiful out of it. See, ore is impure. It is unrefined. It needs to be worked with in order to make something beautiful. Your interest in, we'll call him Jimmy the silversmith, is dependent on what you have and what you want to do with what you have. If you already have fine silver, no thank you, James. Uh, glad to meet you. Have a safe trip back to Virginia. However, if you have unprocessed ore, Jimmy, Jimmy, have a seat. Stay for a while. What can you do for me, Jimmy? You got to work with the stuff that I have. If you consider yourself a good person, a nice, respectable gentleman or lady, who helps people out, has no criminal record, comparatively near the top of the moral list, then you won't see your great need for Jesus Christ. You'll feel pretty comfortable without him and pretty confident that you have life under control. And, and if your life is even out of control, you'll still count on yourself because you see yourself as your way out of it. On the other hand, if you consider yourself a bad person, a bad-natured person, an immoral scallywag, if you will, shot through with beastly desires and prone to act selfishly and prone to hurt people, a lost sinner with extensive guilt before God, topping the naughty list, well, then you know your need of Jesus. You feel uncomfortable and dirty without him. And you're confident that you can't keep things under control. Humble and needy people find Jesus very relevant. They find him essential, beautiful, extremely desirable because he refines the ugly, the broken, the impure, the unrefined, and he makes them beautiful. He removes dirt. He removes dross and purifies them into beautiful. The extent to which you treasure Christ has a lot to do with how you see yourself. Israel watched the evil nations around them 
prosper in their evil and saw themselves as good enough and accused God of being unjust and unresponsive while ignoring the fact that they were unjust and they were unresponsive to God. We've reached Malachi's fourth argument, which parallels his third, and similarly addresses the concept of God's judgment against faithlessness and injustice in Israel, which grew really out of a fear, with no fear, out of no fear of God. And though God is fierce in these verses, if you're paying attention, he is also amazingly gracious and loving by promising the coming of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, to purify and refine. Jesus is here in Malachi. Let's begin here. God is wearied when his purity and justice are questioned. God is wearied when his purity and justice are questions. Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. God was wearied, but not in the sense of, of being tired after a hard day's work, but in the sense of irritation. Israel's words frustrated God. And God added, but you say, how have we wearied him? This is almost amazing, but they were surprised yet again at how they were offending God. This is the sixth time in Malachi that we have encountered this phrase, but you say God would make a truthful statement and then Israel would respond by questioning the statement. And God was tired of it. He was wearied of their words. Here's the first way Israel indicted God's holy character. They were saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Now, that was a serious accusation. The pagan nations around Israel seemed to be prospering in evil, and Israel seemed to be languishing. Israel interpreted that as God opposing them but blessing their pagan enemies. And if you jump down to verses 14 and 15, you see that Israel was basically giving up on serving God. Because it didn't seem to make any temporal difference in this life between those set aside for God's holiness and the evil. So when it comes down to it, Israel accused God of impurity, injustice, and deception. I think they felt entitled as, as bearing the label of God's chosen people. But why would God give them favor if they disobeyed and disrespected him? Why would they expect favor? What irony. They accused God of delighting in evil, and yet they expected him to treat them with favor and to bless them as they lived in evil. The sacred scripture that Israel had revealed that evildoers are an abomination to God, and he never delights in wickedness. Never, ever, ever delights in wickedness. What Israel was doing was ignoring God's word the revealed will of God that they had, and they were impugning his holy character. Their unmet expectations led to emotions which eclipsed their confidence in God's promises. Others ask this, verse 1, where is the God of justice? Also an accusation. Israel assumed that they were good and didn't deserve this ill treatment and accuse God of inactivity and injustice, expecting much more from them. Could, could they not see that God's coming justice wouldn't have been good for them? 
Couldn't they have seen how his justice would have impacted them? Before yearning for justice, they should have yearned for grace and mercy and reconciliation with God. Now, if we're honest, we have questioned God's purity and justice too. We have wondered, where is God? People have done horrible things to you. Uh, it may seem that those people have gotten off scot-free. And you may find yourself emotionally wrestling with, where is God? You may work hard. You may work honestly. And then the lying and cheating and stealing co-worker or student, they are the ones that seem to get ahead. And you may ask, where is God? We may look at all of the evil in the world. We may look at all the atrocities that humanity commits, the carnage, and we may ask, where is God? Why isn't he doing something? Why isn't he responding? Well, if you've ever been there, you need to read Psalm 73. Jot that down. Sometime read Psalm 73. Asaph knew how you feel. But something changed Asaph's perspective. He met with God and was reminded of God's promises that the wicked will be quickly destroyed. They will not escape the fury of God because God is observant and good and he will bring justice. When evil happens to us and when evil happens around us, our emotions can conceal God's promises and actually pull us away from God. So, in the midst of evil, we must trust God's promises for the faithful so we remain confident that righteousness wins at the end. Righteousness has won. God's promises help us keep perspective in the midst of of evil. Romans 2 shows that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice evil. It shows that those with hard and impenitent hearts are storing up God's wrath for themselves when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It shows that there will be wrath and fury for self-seeking and disobedient people. It shows that there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, which should compel us to faithfulness and comfort us in the presence of evil. When it looms. So God promises that justice will be done. But we must be careful with that because that includes justice against our evil. So instead of questioning God's purity and justice, we should trust God's purity and justice and retreat into Christ by faith to escape God's righteous wrath and fury and enjoy in Christ God's grace and pardon and freedom. We must retreat to Christ. You see, it might seem like God is not bringing justice right now. It may seem that the wicked get off scot-free right now. It may seem like God is distant and inactive and unresponsive right now, but God does not need to respond immediately to prove to us his justice. 
For God has promised us in his word that no evil will be overlooked and justice will be done. Before we cry for justice, brothers and sisters, let us cry for mercy and grace because we have sinned against God and without Christ, God's justice is our destruction. But with Christ, God's justice is our liberation. It's easy to focus on other people's sin and the justice they deserve. Oh, how much you should have coming to you and and to ignore our own sin and the justice we deserve, which makes us prone to impugn God's purity and justice instead, instead of somehow combating God in our heart. Why aren't you acting? Where are you? I thought you were just. How could you let this happen? Instead, we must trust God and his promises. The same justice that condemns all evil is the justice that declares us righteous in Christ. God poured out his righteous fury upon Christ on the cross so that everyone who trusts in Christ receives his perfect righteousness, is rendered just, and is fairly, rightly acquitted. Union with with Jesus Christ by grace through faith changes the application of the justice of God for us from penalty to liberty. Verses 1 through 5 answer the question, where is the God of justice? God gives an answer, one answer, that is horror for the prideful and pleasure for the humble. Horror for the prideful, pleasure for the humble. Here's the main point, and then I'll give you six subpoints of explanation. Jesus Christ the Lord came to purify a priestly people for the pleasure of God. Jesus Christ the Lord came to purify a priestly people for the pleasure of God. Number one, God sent a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, the Lord and messenger of the covenant. Look at Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In ancient times, messengers were sent ahead in order to herald or announce the coming of a visiting and great king. Their job was to eliminate interferences. And it reminds me of the Secret Service and all of the the work that they do to prepare the way for the President of the United States. Clearing airspace, notifying the local police, planning motorcade routes, identifying trauma hospitals, clearing roadways if necessary. God promised to send a messenger to get things ready for his arrival. Now, here's a significant point that's easy to miss. God mentioned in verse 1, the Lord, who is different from his messenger. You will see Lord appear three different ways in the English Bible. Number one, Lord in all caps, which translates the Hebrew word Yahweh. Number two, Lord with a capital L, but O-R-D is lowercase which translates the Hebrew word Adon and refers to God as sovereign master. And number three, Lord in all lowercase, which is basically a term of respect for for a man, kind of like sir. So in the New Testament, the Greek word for Lord is kurios and is used to describe Yahweh, but also inescapably assigns divinity and sovereignty to Jesus Christ, who is referred to as Lord. 
So in Malachi 3, the Lord in all caps is speaking. His messenger will prepare the way for him, and yet he tells of the coming of the Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, the master to his temple, who is also the messenger of the covenant, whom Yahweh says he is coming. So Yahweh seems to be coming, and yet this distinctively different Lord and messenger of the covenant is also coming. Do you understand what that implies? The New Testament helps us see that God had promised to send John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is distinct from the Father, but equal and one with him as well. Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant who came to proclaim the gospel, in fact, is the gospel. Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew 11.10, and this is key. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1. Jesus quoted the text that we're looking at today. Jesus added later in verse 14, he is Elijah who is to come, which is a, a direct reference to Malachi 4, 5, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, which says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes without a shadow of a doubt. Jesus and his apostles saw John the Baptist as the messenger sent from God and saw Jesus Christ as the Lord and the messenger of the covenants. In fact, they saw him as the Lord, all caps, in the flesh. Now, there is irony in verse 1. Delight is sarcastic. Israel thought they delighted in the messenger of the covenant, this Lord who would bring justice, but did they know that his coming, that his coming justice, did they know what that meant for them? Did they know how that applied to them? Number two, Jesus Christ the Lord came to his temple. God said in verse one, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God's glorious presence was vacant from the rebuilt temple. Israel was a mess. But God assured them that the Lord would come. He pointed forward to the day where the Lord would come to his temple. Around 130 years or so before Malachi prophesied, Haggai prophesied this, and Israel had this in mind. Haggai 2, verse 7 and 9, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Israel, with this rebuilt temple, was wondering, where is this latter and greater glory? We don't see it. Come on, God. What's the deal here? Where is God? But Haggai spoke about God in human flesh. Joseph and Mary, they brought the child Jesus into the temple in Jerusalem. And a pious Jew named Simeon, whom the Holy Spirit had revealed, would see the Messiah before his death. Simeon took Jesus in his arms, and inside of the temple he said this, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon had seen God's salvation in Jesus Christ. He had seen God's promised ladder and greater glory in the person of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. The Lord had come. He had arrived. And Malachi said in verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Could even Israel, God's chosen nation, endure the coming justice of Christ? Could even Israel stand in the holy presence of the Christ? Well, the clear answer is nobody could stand in the presence of the coming of the Lord. No one can endure the coming of Christ. Number three, Jesus Christ the Lord came to purify. Continuing in verse 2. For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. The Lord came to refine. The Lord came to purify. God's holy temple was polluted. The Lord's table was desecrated. Worship was impure. The Lord would come and would refine it and would purify it. You see, refining of silver is a process. It's a hard process. You need to turn up the heat. You need to torch that stuff and burn away all the dross, all the impurities of the silver so that the silver can be refined and can become pure. Jesus came to burn away iniquity from his people. Another image is fuller's soap. Fuller's worked on cloth and they would take it and they would clean it and shrink it and thicken it and they used these harsh chemicals extracted from plants in order to, to clean. Well, the idea is that the Lord would come to purify. The Lord would come to clean. Please listen. How you respond to Jesus Christ has a lot to do with how you see yourself. Those who perceive no need of refining, no need of purification will render Jesus irrelevant, thus placing themselves in the pathway of his justice, his coming judgment. But those who perceive a great need of refining and purification, those who receive the, the glorious grace of God through Jesus Christ will treasure Christ as the only hope and sure means of purification, of being pure. Why did Jesus come? To purify, to cleanse, to decontaminate. Consider Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27. Jesus came and gave himself for his bride, the church, in order to what? Sanctify her, cleanse her, present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle that she might be holy without blemish. Which leads us to the next point, number four. Jesus Christ the Lord came to purify a priestly people. He came to purify a priestly people, verse three. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, in chapter two, God rebuked the priests, and here uh, he is mentioning uh, or back there, he mentioned the covenant with Levi, but then here he promises to purify and refine the Levites. 
He promises to do an amazing work of grace in them. The coming of the Lord would decontaminate the priesthood so that offerings of worship would be brought to the Lord in righteousness. No longer these horrible practices of defiled and polluted sacrifices. Righteousness. Dr. J.L. Mackey, or McKay rather, made this helpful point. The Levites are symbolic of the cleansed and sanctified church. The holy priesthood. The royal priesthood, the priests of God and of Christ, this purification is affected through the trials the Lord's people now have to undergo. The church is the priesthood. We are the priesthood. He is purifying us so that our worship in Christ is acceptable to God. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. This is very important. Purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Lord did not come to dwell in a building. The Lord did not come to purify a building. He came to purify a people and to live and to dwell in them. Through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, God is making a holy and royal priesthood of all believers and building them in to this pure and God-glorifying temple where worship happens in spirit and in truth. When God turns up the heat in your life. I don't know all your situations. I don't know what weighs heavy on your heart. But when God turns up the heat in your life, when suffering comes for you, when pain comes for you, do you harden and question God's purity and justice? Where have you been, God? Or do you see that God is lovingly and gently And graciously working to purify and refine you so that you shine the glory and supremacy of his son. Do not recoil and run from God in suffering. Trust your father that he is working in you to perfect you so that you are more beautiful than you ever imagined. When God turns up the heat in your life, believe his promises. That is the time, brothers and sisters, to go to scripture, to go and believe what God has promised you because the pain and the suffering, it's too much. We need God to speak in those times, telling us what he has promised will happen and is happening When God turns up the heat in your life, believe his promises that he is refining you into something beautiful. I want you to take something, probably won't, probably will rush into your mind quickly, but take something painful that has happened to you. How might God be using that pain in your life to purify and refine you? What impurity may God be working to burn out of your life? in order to make you shine his beauty more brilliantly. There is an end. Take some failure in your life. You, you just missed. You, it wasn't even close. Could it be that God will use your failure to humble you, to purge away pride and self-reliance from your heart, and then on the tail end of that 
very painful purging process to bless you with deeper intimacy with him and worship that thrills your heart. After my sophomore year at Grove City College, I obtained my real estate license in the state of Pennsylvania. And then after my junior year, I worked with one of the most successful real estate agents in Lancaster County, Tim Schreiner. Millions of dollars of real estate. I had sales experience that many other college students at my age had none. I had some success with Tim. And after interviewing twice with a company called Ryan Homes, which you may have heard of, once in Cleveland, I was flat out rejected. We would get these rejection letters and then put them up in the hallway showing, well, they didn't want us. We're failures. And I couldn't make sense of it. Why didn't they want me? Why didn't they want me? It didn't make sense. And God was, was turning up the heat. He was burning away the dross to refine me into something more beautiful than what I was at that moment. Through failure, through disappointment, I didn't make it. Now, I know you have stories. The refiner's fire, it does burn. And it does consume. But it also purifies and perfects. Don't question God's purity and justice. Don't question his goodness. Instead, believe his promises that he is working to make you pure and beautiful. Trust him to do in you what only he can do. Burn from you any impurity so that you shine him. So that you shine him. You are his temple and he came to you to purify you. Well, this brings us to a very important point, number five. Jesus Christ the Lord came to purify a priestly people for the pleasure of God. Don't miss the ultimate purpose of the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Judah and Jerusalem and the temple were polluted and God had said, I have no pleasure in you. No pleasure. What you're doing, terrible. Not accepting it. But notice that after the Lord arrives and after he purifies and refines, then Levi will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, offerings that would please the Lord. Do you understand? The Lord must purify and refine you in order for your offerings to worship and please him. God's sovereign and sanctifying grace must change you in order for you to please God. No one is pure enough. No one is refined enough. No one is already beautiful and doesn't need Christ. And no one, no one, no one can clean themselves up. Self-help and the bookshelves that contain the books helping you to help yourself are blasphemous. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the refiner, the fuller, must work in you to cleanse you and shape you to be pleasing to the Lord of hosts. And, and I want you to hear this loud and clear. You actually can please God. You can be a pleasure to God, but only through Christ 
who makes you a pleasure. You can't work it out and somehow say, today I'm going to please God and I don't need Jesus' help. You can't help yourself. You can't help each other, but Jesus can. He's the refiner. He's the fuller. He makes you a pleasure to God. It was Jesus Christ who endured the fires of God's furious and just judgment on the cross so that we would be purified and we would be refined in his refiner's fire, which is grace given through faith as we trust him. God only accepts 100% pure. He doesn't accept 99.9% pure. 100% pure is all that God accepts. It is Jesus Christ who is at work to burn away all impurities from you so that at his second coming now, the final day, you will be ready to meet God. You will be refined. You will not be consumed in his presence Because Jesus has stood in your place and has refined you and has prepared you and has sanctified you and has cleansed you and purified you so you stand bold in the day of his coming. Christ has made you pure. The refiner's fire and the fuller's soap is good if you trust Christ. But if you harden and you impugn God's holy character and you retreat from him in suffering, you will receive his justice. Number six, Jesus Christ the Lord came and is coming to bring justice. Please listen. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Israel wanted justice, and guess what? It was on its way. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourners, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Israel wondered, where is the God of justice? Well, he was coming with the fire of justice burning in his eyes. He would be a swift witness against covenant breakers. His eyewitness testimony would be the definitive and condemning evidence against them. God mentioned a whole bunch of sins here. The breaches of the covenant, sorcery, adultery, which we saw last time, living, uh, lying while under oath, oppressive labor practices against weaker members of society, and ultimately the root of it all, from where all that stems, no fear of God. Would Israel, in all their injustice, escape God's coming judgment? Not if they persisted in these injustices. One study note said this, when the Lord comes, he will perform two complementary works. He will purify some sinners and judge others. He's coming. He has come. And my question to you this morning, for you to, to consider, are you being purified by the Lord Or are you being judged by the Lord? Here's how to tell the difference. If the Lord is purifying you, repentance and faith and ongoing learning and growth and increased holiness will be evident in your life. It will just be what you do. If you are under the judgment of God, you will persist in unrepentant sin. 
you'll be cynical towards God's promises. You will tolerate the spiritual apathy and stagnancy in your life and live indifferent to growth and holiness. You just won't care. I don't care if I get holy. I don't care if I'm more like Jesus tomorrow than what I am today. I just don't care. Jesus is not, whatever our culture has said, he is not a long-haired, pacifist, tolerant hippie who nonchalantly stands by as people do whatever they want. In one sense, Jesus came for judgment. Jesus said in John 9, 39, for judgment I came into this world, and those who do not that, those who do not see, may see, grace, and those who see may become blind, justice and judgment. He said earlier in John 5, but the Father has given all judgment to whom? To the Son. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. All authority is with Christ to judge, to bring justice. When Jesus Christ came the first time, he brought division. No doubt, people were divided over him. People welcomed judgment upon themselves from God by rejecting God's Son, Jesus Christ. Malachi may have even been foreshadowing the second coming of Christ here as well, when he will bring final judgment. Verse 5 should do something inside of you. Uh, It should create in you a certain fear of Jesus. I find that even Christians, even myself, belittle Jesus by diminishing and devaluing the full extent of his holy character. We want to think of him as a nice guy that walks around in a dress or something and helps people. I don't know. But we minimize that. He is just. He is good. And he abhors all evil. And he has promised to judge it all. He will miss none of it. He will catch all of it. He is eternally observant. He is the God of justice who has come and is coming, so to belittle sin in your life or anyone else's life and to anticipate somehow some universal leniency from the Son of God is very ill-advised. You're being warned about that now. Psalm 2, verse 12, gets it exactly right. It says this, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Is that not beautiful? Kiss the son. Submit to him. Adore him. Take refuge in him and be happy in him. If you don't, you are kindling in the backdraft of his justice. Think about this last point. I'll end with this. God is always just. Never overlooks evil always judges evil, yet often purifies people of evil so they live to worship him. It is human nature to demand swift justice when evil happens to us. We all understand that. To, it's, it's human nature for us to impugn God's holy character when he doesn't do it like we want him to do it. When he doesn't bring justice as immediately as we want him to. And at the same time, it's human nature for us to excuse 
justice in regards to our evil. Uh, To assume the best about ourselves and to expect God to suspend his justice and overlook our evil. We'll see next time that God is immutable. That means God never changes. He is eternally just and eternally good. He acts, always acts, consistently with his divine and holy character. God does not tolerate any evil ever. His justice uh, does not need to be immediate for it to be real and effectual for us. Justice is coming. So in light of that, God's grace in Christ should be the hope and the treasure of our lives. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can receive the righteousness of Jesus and be counted by God as entirely righteous. Christ therein becomes our shelter from the storm of God's furious justice. Inside of Christ, God is loving Father who brings only kindness and favor, and then his refining fire acts to lovingly and graciously purify and conform us to the beauty of his son, Christ, which is the desire of our heart that he has graciously put in there. Verses two through four should be the passionate cry of all of our hearts. God, may the Lord Jesus Christ come and purify and refine me like gold and silver, so that I may be like Jesus and may shine your glory and your majesty and your splendor and your magnificence. You are only consumed if you remain in your sin. But if you retreat into Christ, the refiner's fire makes you clean. I'll end here. The extent to which you treasure Christ has a lot to do with how you see yourself. And how you see him. Kiss the sun. And welcome the refiner's fire. It is good. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for the refiner's fire. God, I hate suffering. I want a comfortable life. I want to be beautiful, rich, prominent, powerful, a name for myself. I want to be better than others. I want people to cheer and applaud my name. I don't want to suffer. So God, break me. I confess it as sin because if we want to identify with Jesus, we have to go through the refining fire. We need to suffer. In fact, if we're faithful with Christ, we will. I think that's a promise from you. So God, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters and I I, I plead for me and for them that we would suffer well and that we would not harden under your refining fire but that we would be softened and molded and refined and purified and cleansed and made into the image of Jesus. We treasure him, we value him, he's awesome, we wanna be just like him and so God, that's gonna take work on your part and cooperation on ours to follow you, to believe in your promises. God, I pray for, for all of, of my dear friends here this morning. In our weakness, God, we, we don't know how we're gonna ever survive the, the horrible things in our lives. The things that we've done, the things people have done against us, how in the world can we step forward? How in the world can we leave the house 
But God, we can if we know you are working for our good as a father who loves us and is purifying us. Then all of a sudden tragedy is transformed into something beautiful that refines us into something beautiful. So God, I pray for that heart in us. You have to produce us because we do not have it by our own nature. We are not good. You are. And so you can transform us. So do your work on us, God. And may we be ready to respond, humbled, trusting your promises, never giving up, never taking our eyes off of Jesus because he is up to something amazing. Help us to trust that, God. We need to trust that in Jesus' name. Amen.